0: Welcome back everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, Ian and I will be discussing the January 11th issue of Billboard Magazine in which something historically pivotal at the time occurred. Nirvana's Nevermind usurped Michael Jackson's Dangerous from the top of the charts. And we'll be discussing what that does and does not mean historically. If you're listening to us on Spotify, there'll be a version of this episode with much more music, full tracks, so follow us there if you do. Subscribe to Spotify, or even if you're even if you a free user of Spotify, you'll still hear snippets of all that music. Make sure you subscribe to us on any platform you use, so you know when these episodes become available. And if you are interested in music like I am, make sure to check out our previous music episodes in which we discuss the careers of Chris Cornell on the anniversary of his death. Two very long episodes where we talk about the peak creative output, the best years of Prince's illustrious career. Another tragic death, unfortunately. And also, this is a very pivotal year. 1991 that we'll be discussing today but do check out ian and my conversation regarding 1971 in regards to the apple documentary 1971 the year that music changed everything a very interesting documentary and of course if you've been watching the beatles get out documentary another very long documentary i would highly recommend you check out that documentary and our conversation and some of the music we played in those episodes as well all available in this same feed and intersecting with that 1971 conversation, Ian and I also previously had had a conversation discussing the career of Harry Nilsson, whose career peaked pretty much in 1971. Nilsson Schmilsson being just one of the classic albums that came out that year. So all that is available, and we just recapped the finale of Dexter this week. I don't know how <laughs> I don't know how good it was because I am recording this before I watch it, but we will be publishing this on January 11th. And also, I have caught up on yellow jackets a tv show that i recommended earlier that has become really really interesting has become and has become quite the conversation piece on the internet and sona and i have both caught up on it we will be discussing it in those episodes and we will definitely be recapping the finale next week so catch up on that and check out our long conversation about the season up until this point all right with that house cleaning out of the way let's discuss this chart week january 11th 1991 Now, this will be the long preamble to Ian joining the conversation. And I'm going to set a lot of context here. And as my wife can testify, this is the best part about being married to me. (laughs) My long preambles to conversations. That's a joke, by the way. (laughs) But hopefully it is educational for those who did live through this period of time, or especially if you did not. So one thing I'm always fascinated by, we as a species require this mythology, this story building around sometimes arbitrary events. So history is the formation of that story, but we have this desire to sometimes oversimplify stories. And I think that's what happens. I guarantee you this week on this day, you will see many, many articles written about this particular chart week. And I want to add some context there because some of those articles I'm sure will be very rich in their context setting, but some will oversimplify this. In general, this story is oversimplified in the fact that Nirvana put out their record, it dethroned Michael Jackson. And it quashed the 80s. It was the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, as far as music was concerned, as as far as popular culture was concerned. There is something that there is no doubt that there is a pivot in the culture happening here, undoubtedly, but it is a chicken or egg situation, as often is the case. And I'll try to crystallize that in my comments here. So first of all, this moment in time when Nirvana, this album that was released with very little fanfare, had suddenly overtaken the most anticipated album of the year, the Michael Jackson album, which was a hit, by the way, was set. This moment was set by something that happened much earlier in 1991. And what that was, was that Billboard changed their methodology of how they ranked or reported their number one albums. Previously, Billboard would contact record stores around the country and poll the owners. So the first thing is that this often represented like a gut feeling for what the owners were saying was actually selling. They knew what they had shipped, what they had received in shipments, but they didn't necessarily know it was actually selling on the the shelves unless they had very advanced computer systems at the time, which most small record stores and even large ones did not have at that time. And these interviews were done weekly. I won't even get into the whole situation where record labels would often pay these record owners to manipulate the statistics they would overship they would give them deep deep discounts on some targeted areas to jack up their sales in those regions knowing that billboard would like multiply they couldn't talk to every single record store so they would multiply those by some kind of factor so there was a lot of manipulation of what was a hit record and was not and once again not to bore you with all the details but it's very interesting to look at very old end of year billboard charts and see that things for example like just to call out one and justice for all by metallica which was probably the best-selling album of its year, eventually, not at at the moment, but eventually, and it was not even on the top 100 albums of the year in which it was released. Meanwhile, it sold 8 million copies, and there are albums on that top 100 albums of the year that never went gold, that barely went platinum, and some of the number one, number two, maybe the top 10 on that list, those albums maybe eventually went triple platinum, perhaps maybe quadruple platinum, but Injustice for All goes and sells 8 million copies, over its lifetime of course not all at once but doesn't even crack the top 100 and a second thing about the billboards methodology was that it was based on a point system simply based on how many weeks were you at number one in the top 10 etc so if you were number one you got 100 points if you were 100 you got one point and you just added up those weeks so imagine a record suddenly gets very popular on the radio that album spends 10 weeks at number one because it's the middle of the spring no one's putting out big records they're waiting for the holiday season which is often the case and you just happen to get a big top 10 hit record which pushes your album's Enough to just barely squeak by week after week in the top number one, top five, top ten, etc. At the end of the year, you're one of the biggest albums of the year, supposedly, according to this calculation. But it doesn't mean anything because potentially you, over the entire year, sold three or four hundred thousand copies. Meanwhile, at Christmas time, a blockbuster heavy metal album will come out or something and sell three or four hundred thousand copies in a week and won't even make the charts. So this was all the way that the system was before. And then in 1991, a company called SoundScan had begun to actually track at the point of sale. You scan the UPC code on the album, the cassette, the CD, etc., And that total sales number was reported to SoundScan. SoundScan would compile that number and send it to Billboard. And Billboard started to basically make almost 100% of their calculation based on that number. Now, all of a sudden you were seeing how big a record was and if you have a galog jam of five six seven huge records all coming around the holiday season and all knocking each other or blocking each other from even making the top five sometimes but those albums went on to sell seven eight million records those numbers would show up as a hugely successful album right it would be one of the biggest albums of the year and it would stay on the chart for a very long time so this began in may 25th i believe the week was 25th of may on the billboard charts And that was a huge pivot, which suddenly we started seeing things on the charts we hadn't seen before. Suddenly, on the very first week, Public Enemy's album, which had not even been in the top 30, I think, jumped into the top 10. And SoundScan had already reported that its opening week had sold hundreds of thousands of albums. It would have easily been the number one album of the week in which it was released, but wouldn't even make the charts. And we saw that with this whole genre of gangster rap, which we'll talk about a little bit more over the course of this conversation. But NWA, not that Public Enemy was gangster rap, but you know, more hardcore rap, these albums suddenly jumped into the top 10. Another thing that happened was, this is the moment where Garth Brooks, another big story from 1991, also jumped straight into the number one. I mean, he had multiple albums. I think at one point he had the top three or three of the top five albums in the country because his albums were selling like crazy. And country, like rap and some other genres of music, heavy metal, for example, were underrepresented the way that it, previously Billboard had compiled their data. So it's the summer. The charts are already starting to change. We're starting to see things on the charts we normally wouldn't have seen. Alternative music ranking more highly. Metal ranking more highly. Country music in the top 10, sometimes number one even. Things we were not used to seeing on the charts. And this culminates at the end of 1991, where a lot of very interesting music comes out. And I think that's why this is a very interesting year, because it's not only the fact that this thing happened on the charts where we see these two very different expectations of a- of albums knocking each other out for number one there's also a lot of quality music here in this year to discuss so the second cultural thing to discuss here or trend we should dis- describe that was revealed by this sound scan shift but had always been the case was that there was traditionally a situation where for example An album like a Michael Jackson album, or an album that supposedly appealed to younger audiences, would be released right before Christmas. And then what would happen would be that CDs would become like the stocking stuffer. It was the thing that grandma and grandpa got you when they were at the CVS. And I don't know if you grew up through this age, but it was incredible. You would walk into a CVS, you'd walk into a Walgreens you'd walk into Best Buy obviously where there would be racks and racks of CDs everywhere but these CDs would come out at deep discounts which are still pretty expensive compared to what music costs now you're talking about a $20 CD discounted to $10 but you just for inflation we're talking about $20 for a CD and now people buy singles for a dollar or just stream stuff for free practically for free when you consider the per track costs but it was like the stocking stuffer for du jour at the time. And of course you'd grab whatever was there. If Michael Jackson's album got distributed to every single Walmart, every single Target, basically every single shop you walked into, even your convenience store sometimes, it would just be like, you know, you grab that, you stick it in there on the way to the family's house and you quickly got a easy gift for the cousin. Now that would make the sales look really, really good in the olden days. But what happened with SoundScan was suddenly people would return those CDs. Those returns would be subtracted from the following week's sales. So even though we're talking about January 11th on the charts, it actually represents the week after Christmas because the Billboard chart weeks get published a couple of weeks after the actual sales transactions happen. Obviously, you spend a week calculating the sales, they get published, and then Billboard publishes their magazine with those that sales data, which of course is already a week old by then. So importantly, that's the week we're talking about. We're talking about not the week of Christmas when people are receiving those stocking stuffers. It's the following week where the Michael Jackson record had subtracted huge numbers of returns of teenagers returning those unwanted records and trading them out for records that they did want. Namely, the name one, the Nirvana album which of course skyrocketed the album up the charts and also simultaneously dinged the Michael Jackson album, right, to knock it down to number two. By the way, this became such a prevalent trend that over and over again, this would be a pattern that'd be repeated every single year on Christmas week or immediately after Christmas, literally the day after so to be part of the next chart week, you would see a heavy metal band, a R&B artists, and oftentimes rap artists which had maybe more difficult reputations for as far as parents were concerned, would drop these albums at that moment because they knew they would cash in on these swaps and they would have a huge sales week the next week if they were the album. To release. So that's the first point to make that this thing that's happening on the charts, it didn't happen just this week, it was happening all over for a long period of time. And then when people say, Oh, look at how the charts changed after this point, my point is that the charts were already changing. And this is just the moment reflecting in the methodology. Once again, chicken or egg, right? Billboard is changing their methodology because they no longer make sense to the music scene. But also they're just revealing something. And of course, once something gets becomes the, the story, then things start to change because people like that simple story. And an example of that was how alternative music basically became the most popular radio format over the next six, seven years, for example, or or so. And a lot of that was the tail wagging the dog. In the fact that people were seeing the charts and they're like, oh, this thing's happening, unaware that it had always been happening. But it doesn't matter because once it becomes a story, it creates its own trend. The second part of this uh, mythology is that Nirvana basically cracked things open that alternative music became the mainstream because of Nirvana. Now, don't get me wrong. The fact that they had achieved such success is undoubtedly essential to that shift. It made it marketable to change your format of your uh, radio station to a, all alternative. But it's not like it hadn't already been occurring. Forgotten in a large, uh, to a large extent is the fact that, for example, The Cure had had multiple multi-platinum albums leading up to 1991, leading up to this moment. Mode had had platinum records before, and Violator, from 1990, had gone triple platinum. That's the one with Enjoy the Silence on it. Their biggest record. And of course, before the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which were about to break out hugely in 1991 into 1992, came Jane's Addiction, which their album had also gotten double
1: platinum.
0: And even deep more deeply, even more in the background were bands for example like Sonic Youth, which did not release an album in 1991. However, had just released Goo, their first major label record on Geffen in
1: 1990.
0: while Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth had produced the first whole album, which did come out in 1991. And lastly, Nirvana came to Geffen Records because of Sonic Youth. They basically said, well, if Sonic Youth can come to Geffen and not sell out, we could do a major label deal as well. And of course, already on the charts was, speaking of Seattle, was Facelift by Allison Chains. And Pearl Jam's album was already out there, floating on the charts.
1: Mm, a time I could control myself a
0: time I lose myself Temple of the Dog and Soundgarden's bad motorfinger was already on the charts. So Seattle was already well represented, had already had major label attention, so there was a lot of activity around alternative music and just around rock music in general the biggest album to actually come out of this year 1991 is not the nirvana album it's the black album it's the highest selling metallica album with enter sandman and other hits on it as well More than that, over time, this would become the biggest selling album of this decade. Of all times, actually, according to SoundSkin. One of the best-selling albums of all times historically. But all that being said, and how this can all be misconstrued as all about Nirvana, the reality is that the 80s are dying here. They really are dying and maybe even dead. Not in the pop charts, which I'll talk about briefly, but on the album charts for sure. The 80s had been all about finding that next giant blockbuster album. Whether that be Thriller, but Michael Jackson's career is on the wane. Whether that be Purple Rain, and of course 1991 does have a very popular Prince release, Diamonds and Pearls, but that is his last multi platinum album. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, and he's about to release two albums, just like Guns N' Roses, but his albums barely go platinum, a big drop off in his sales as well. And Madonna, of course, 1990 being her peak year, her greatest hits album, her most popular record at the time, but she's about to stumble badly, coming off of like a massive success and a string of top 10 hits with erotica which is considered a flop at the time despite having numerous hits off of it and she really struggles to find her footing until the mid 90s when she reinvents herself yet again so these icons of the 80s are stumbling and fading and even other things we've seen for example the whole pop rap had gotten more and more and more child-friendly until you end up with things like mc hammer and vanilla ice who both have albums out this year that Way underperform, And then, of course, their careers are almost eradicated. Like, they are unable to sell even gold records after... Just at the moment, this first phase of rap being pop is destroyed by the popularity of what was called gangster rap at the time. And this whole decade, the whole next decade, is defined overtly by the popularity of this gangster rap genre and all the spin-offs of those artists as well but maybe more influentially or at least equally influ- influential are bands like a tribe called quest back in the days on the boulevard i landed we used to kick routines and the presence was fit it was pm dawn de la soul cypress hill public enemy that were true hip hop, true rap, but were definitely coming from what they could, you know, what now is retroactively called alternative rap. And ironically, this is things that never broke out on the singles charts, never became radio staples, these artists. However, they sold records and their albums became essential to a whole generation of hit hit makers of the future because alternative rap artists like OutKast and the Fugees would eventually become the biggest rap artists out there. Of course, a generation later, Everybody who grew up listening to gangster rap and alternative rap have now come up with their own blend of it now with this emo rap and all the artists that we have now. And really, that's the story of our current decade. The 80s also are secretly the decade of metal becoming pop. Whether that is Van Halen sanding off all their rough edges and becoming as poppy as possible throughout the 80s. And you really see their popularity wane after this moment in time. And you could just go down the line. You have Metallica having this hugely successful year to a large extent, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, and Metallica's most two recent albums at this point, basically killed all the popular metal, all the poisons, and all of the lesser acts out there that aren't terrible, by the way, but like Skid Row and Cinderella and Winger and Poison and you name it. All of the, you know, Motley Crue, don't want to keep them out of it considering how popular they were, and Def Leppard that had become whatever they were. They had become more pop than they were metal at that point but ironically Guns N' Roses and Metallica come out as kind of like a real pure you got in the case of Guns N' Roses something much more bluesy and Metallica something much more aggressive but they simultaneously eradicate the previous decade of metal but they peak here Metallica never sells as well as they do here and of course Guns N' Roses struggles to ever even put out another album at this point
1: the and I don't want to hear no more
0: And like I mentioned, even Def Leppard that had two diamond-selling records, two hugely, hugely successful records back-to-back, struggled with their next releases. And what's coming in the 90s? What are we about to see? The 90s are going to see an explosion, like I mentioned, of these alternative acts. And some of them are legacy. For example, R.E.M. were progenitors of this whole thing. Their first EP comes out in 81, 82. And yet they will be successful late into the late 90s. That
1: was just a dream. That was just a dream.
0: Same thing with U2. U2 has one of their peak years this year. REM as well, by the way. Out of Time is their biggest selling record of all times. And U2's Akhtung Baby is one of their biggest selling albums of all times. Not their number one, but very close to it. And maybe their most well respected. and they span the next decade as well so they kind of survived the 80s did not get destroyed by a lot of these like these a lot of these other artists but there's this entire alternative scene that's emerging this year as well when you look at the charts the red hot chili peppers their biggest album is coming this year the And they will have a decade of being like the preeminent arena rock band. Them and you 2 I would say. But the Smashing Pumpkins, their GISH album comes out this year. And that's just the first step in them becoming massively successful. Hole's album is here as well. And of course, they'll become much bigger in the next few years. And the big question mark I have here, and I'll have to work it out with Ian if he can provide some context. Or any of you out there who have more context around this than I do, is the utter phenomena that was Garth Brooks at this point in time. He, I think his first album came out in 89 or 90, was a huge hit, although it never at the time, because of the methodology, never really had a top 10 record, but quietly went and sold millions and millions of copies. And then the next record goes to number one, the next one after that goes to number one and one after the other, after the other, he becomes inevitably, eventually the biggest certified, the most certified uh, solo male artist in history. Now, a lot of that is him fudging the numbers. He puts out like albums that are doubles and triples because he knows that that's how you get additional certifications from the RIAA, from the record industry. But it's undeniable at how utterly massive he was and yet had no crossover hits onto the pop charts, unlike uh, Taylor Swift, for example, or um, other pop country performers like Shania Twain. So somehow without courting the pop audience. He had become the, the biggest performing uh, artist at the time. But what I find more fascinating is not his success, which is in and of itself incredibly fascinating. Don't get me wrong. this is amazing that there's someone who, whose songs are probably staples to a relatively small percent of the American population, would somehow still sell so many albums. But the second thing I find fascinating is how could someone so utterly consequential... From propping up the music industry of its time, have, in my opinion, such a small legacy today. It's not only that country itself has faded as a sales force, even when you look at streaming, even if you look at album sales. I mean, the number one album last year was a country album, the double album by Morgan Waller. But if anything, he has more of an R and he has a hip hop influence to his music which I don't see as uh, echoing back to Garth Brooks. And as a matter of fact, I don't see anybody in the country scene who echoes back to him. You look at the the biggest artists in that genre now, they may echo back to even older legacy artists. They may be more pop-driven or influenced by hip-hop beats, for example. But they don't seem to, other than maybe they grew up listening to Garth Brooks, they don't really seem to have used his career as a template. So I don't understand how someone could be so huge, have left behind such relatively small cultural impact. Maybe something that Ian can add some context to. I am not disparaging Garth Brooks as an artist, by the way. Not my kind of music, but hey, anyone who has that kind of success, I tip my hat to you. Okay, so that's the context setting. 1991, alternative music is about to wipe out the artists of the eighties. Brian Adams has the biggest song of the year, but his career is waning. Rod Stewart and all these kind of artists that became very middle of the road. Michael Bolton, another example of this. These kind of safe, middling, soft rock, or jazz-influenced performers were about to be wiped off the charts. But they won't disappear completely, right? You have a whole generation of the Michael Buble's and the Harry Connick Jr.'s of the world. So there's always an appetite for that type of artist. I'm just saying specifically, those of the 80s got wiped out for a while, by the way, because some of those artists are still around now. They've come back around. So there's always nostalgia for something, whether it's good or bad. All right, with that out of the way, Ian and I will now be continuing this conversation in the context of playing actual tracks for you. And if you're listening on Spotify, as I mentioned before, you'll be able to hear the entire tracks. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Follow us so you get updates when new episodes are available. And I can't wait to hear what songs he's bringing to the table. Let me ask you a quick question because, I mean, I had a particularly interesting experience. I was someone who like, you know, whatever was getting played on the radio didn't really work for me. And then I started to get into classic rock and then I quickly evolved, you know, within a couple of years, went quickly through <laughs> classic rock. There was like a, a group of people who were, you know, listening to metal. And I liked Metallica, but I didn't like metal in general. So I like dipped my toes into a bunch of different things. And for example, if you were into alternative music, you were into like The Cure and Depeche Mode. And I liked a couple of songs here and there, but I wasn't really like, love those guys. And then what happened was that I was into, for example, Mudhoney's, Uh, EPs and I was listening to Sonic Youth and I was listening to Dinosaur Jr.'s EPs, those early EPs. And I was into like this really noisy stuff and there was no home for it. You know, the goth kids weren't listening to it. The metal kids weren't listening to it. It was too arty to be metal. It was too noisy to be what was passing for alternative music at the time. So it basically, it had no home. And I listened to this stuff and I was into it. And this is like my core genre. And then somehow, Somehow, all of a sudden in 1990, 1991, it is the most popular thing on the planet Earth. And I'm like, how did that happen? How did this thing that nobody was into become so huge? So that's my experience of it. It It's like such a bizarre moment to listen to these bands that are all underground and then they all become mainstream, but over the course of a year or so. And then, of course, you know, everybody like the Melvins are getting, you know, getting played on college radio because they're like, you know, hey, they're from Seattle, we'll play anything, right? It's just a very strange moment in time. But for you, you were so much younger. That's my fundamental question. You know, for me, it's like Nirvana was the icon, the the symbol for this moment in time where this strange thing happened to me personally, felt like it happened to me personally. And then of course he dies and that's tragic. And the first pop star I had kind of like associated myself to has now committed suicide. It was like really shocking to me at the time. But yeah. for you, <laughs> you kind of missed that whole thing. You kind of came to it. I assume you weren't like listening to Nirvana when you're eight years old. You probably came to it a little bit later on, right? So what was your experience of Nirvana or like this whole moment in time, like that whole shift?
2: yeah i was turned eight in december of 91. you know i was always surrounded by music my folks have like a gigantic record collection just r- running the gamut uh, my mom particularly was is a huge u2 fan mm-hmm. also big rem fan brian ferry uh mm-hmm. rocks music they were keeping current pretty much um into the 90s tom petty obviously another artist um I remember being played quite frequently, Paul Simon, things like that. And I was also, at this time, watching MTV more. I'd go to my grandmother's house during the days in the summer, and she was just like, go do whatever you want. My parents weren't particularly keen, I I think, on me watching MTV too, too much. But over at my grandmother's, I was able to indulge in that a bit more. So I definitely do remember All these uh, groups, you know, uh, Boys to Men, uh, the Michael Jackson videos of the time were, you know, massive media events. But this point, I was still a couple years away from even purchasing my own music with like my allowance or whatever. (laughs) Right. Um, So it pretty much was like an MTV experience for me. So in that regard, I do have vivid memories of Nirvana and was into that. It's one of my favorite songs of theirs in bloom is on yeah. nevermind the fourth single i believe yeah. and you know again that speaks to the power of the music video because that was a really neat it was like the they looked like they're on the ed sullivan show
1: mm-hmm.
2: remember the black crows video remember the pm don video because that was just so so
0: trippy and kind
2: of like wild
0: for me like i'm like like a tastemaker in the midst of this thing as it's happening but for you this is the pop music you grew up in right you just this is the water you were swimming in
2: yeah exactly up until then i was always surrounded by music but it was purely curated by my parents Mm -hmm. you know one of the first things being taught was how to properly put a record on a turntable and you know <laughs> drop the needle without you know scratching, scratching it
0: exactly something uh, everybody's learning now again all over again
2: <laughs> again yeah you know like we said everything kind of cycles back um but yeah you're right to me i couldn't perceive any change because i had no it was what it was for me
0: i definitely wanted to start with nirvana there's so many songs that i really love on Never mind. And if I had to pick my favorite song off there, it's probably Drain You was my favorite track off of there. I really want to kind of draw attention to songs. So I'm like, man, nothing on that record. Even the deep cuts are pretty well-known songs, right? Yeah. So I I did want to go with something deep. I wanted to play Aneurysm, which is the B-side of Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, just as annoying as this sounds, there used to be, it's just my personal bio here, that at the uh, diner where we would go eat on the weekends, there was a little jukebox on our table and I would always play aneurysm, the B-side to Smells Like Teen Spirit and I'd play it really loud and I can imagine all those old people at the diner were very annoyed with us. But of course, at the time, we didn't care. Hey, they put a jukebox on my table. I'm going to play it. Yeah. <laughs> but here right. it is. This is the abrasive noise that people in Jersey had to hear at the diner when they were trying to have breakfast with their families because of me. Nice. <laughs>
2: Um, right there it's um, the first line come on over and do the twist Kurt Cobain really was a pop fan at heart and you know from the Beatles but I could also he probably listened to enough of that Chubby Checker song growing up too that that was (laughs) something that you know um, left a mark on him as well so raw and powerful amazing group you know I think one thing that's kind of glossed over a bit are the the politics of the group or more specifically I guess Kurt you know is kind of uh sublimated by the music you know a lot of the anguish and stuff that he sings about is you know not only personal but it's also reacting to the oppressive majority whether it's the jocks that you know date rape women and beat up nerds or whomever so yeah they're uh They're great.
0: Maybe that is something that was the politics of the time, and they embraced it fully because they were of that generation. I mean, he was still pretty young when he started playing. He was like eighteen, I think, when he joined uh, his first band. You know, he got really annoyed annoyed when you know that whole story about that girl who got raped while they were singing Nirvana, and he was like, you know, so counter uh, to his whole philosophy. Or when you know, he's not the first person to do this, but where he like did the Vanity Fair cover with a dress on or something, and it was like he was like intentionally just basically saying that it was a reaction a direct reaction to this whole idea of like the 80s where everybody had these very specific uh, genres that you fit into and he was basically saying like i love heavy metal and i love rem and i love you know the beatles i, I know and, and if you're like a jock or a bully screw you and i don't want you to buy my music Him. And i think that was very indicative of the time and that kind of was uh you know their personal philosophy as well that genres breaking down is what allows them to be popular, but it's actually their own personal like in other words, they walk the walk is my
2: point. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. Um Nirvana being kind of the um like the spearhead of grunge in a lot of ways. Another group from uh you know that same Seattle scene, Soundgarden, was also really kind of starting to come into their own and make noise. they uh record bad motor Finger, um my favorite one, of their albums yeah. yeah i believe that's their second studio record um it might have
0: been their third his second uh major label i think
2: and uh yeah i just wanted to play outshined mm, um yeah. off of that which i believe is the second single just a great tune with a different and you can tell you know while they're all under this grunge umbrella they there are really stylistic divergence even within that um sure. and Soundgarden um, are almost like a, the Led Zeppelin of grunge in, in a way. <laughs> yeah.
0: They're very metal. Yeah, I, I think they're more of a metal band than, you know, but they got looped, lopped in with that. Yeah. Album. And they maybe the the origin of, well, maybe not. I was going to say they're kind of the origin of that alternative metal scene, but I was actually thinking that Faith No More and them both are kind of very important to that beginning of that show. Yeah. Genre. And
2: what's also interesting, I think, with Soundgarden, um, to me, you know, you can hear in kind of contrast with Nirvana, you know, they have the little vocal harmony section in that part. Mm-hmm. The structure is much more classical, but they also do like these weird time signatures and mm-hmm. uh, and kind of interesting choices arrangement wise. You know, what's interesting is that they had been going for a few years already at this point and... I think they had um a real influence on um you know groups like tool um who yeah. basically came out with their first uh, ep in 92 opiate and then um released undertow uh, i think the following year in 93 but yeah they're kind of more classic um sounding than nirvana and some of the other grunge acts but uh just a, another great dynamic band. And um, unfortunately, you know, another front man who another
0: tragic death, yeah.
2: died way too soon.
0: Yeah, and I, just as a self-promotion here, there is a whole episode I did on Chris Cornell on his anniversary. So if anybody wants to track that down, kind of go into a large chunk, maybe 80% of that episode is all Soundgarden because obviously that was the most important part of his career, but goes into that in more detail. And I agree. I think what's interesting about Soundgarden as someone who you know appreciated them at the time, and this is my favorite Soundgarden album, by the way, not their most popular, but my favorite, Bad Motorfinger. And what I liked about it was that, like you you touched on, they have the influence of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, so they're very much more metal influence as opposed to Nirvana's much more punk influence pop. You know, they're they going they're going back to classic rock like the Beatles, classic rock, and punk rock as far as like their the abrasive abrasiveness of their sound, whereas you hear. Soundgarden's going back to Black Sabbath and to uh, Led Zeppelin for their kind of song structures, but they also have this element, this feel of the psychedelic California as well. So that's kind of bubbling under it. And some of the experimentation in their song structure and stuff like that is not traditionally Black Sabbath is just a blues band, right? So it's not traditionally like a blues influence, but uh, it's interesting that they're blending that together. And like you mentioned, in a very subtle way, they are that alternative metal just because they present themselves as this, you know, aggressive metal band, there actually are kind of like under the covers kind of weird uh, influences there. There's some of these time signature changes. So yeah, I, I I think they're a great band and I think that they're probably a little underappreciated compared to um, some of these other artists. Mm. Angling back on Nirvana again, Kurt Cobain, when they asked them where Smells Like Teen Spirit came from and he said, Oh, that's easy. We were just trying to write a Pixies song. We totally ripped them off. He goes, you know that whole loud, quiet, loud thing. They got it down, and we. I just said, does this sound like a Pixies song? It's going to be a hit, which is funny because, by the way, that you know, as fu- as much as the Pixies now are, you know, th- their streaming numbers are actually pretty impressive considering their record sales back in the day. They're probably extremely influential, and still, I think uh, because they are the type of band that literally hooks you in. They they don't they do not believe in a five minute build up to. A payoff they hook you in the first second of the song the hook comes first uh, so they were in a way like always a pop band and i don't think they ever apologized for it but it's kind of funny that they weren't able as influential as they are to stay together but 1991 they did put out their last album before they broke up for quite a period of time They're back together again but they broke up for like almost 20 years and uh and they had success on their own uh you know uh cannonball uh the breeders put out an album in 1992 massively successful album. Uh, And then uh, Frank Black never has, I don't think he ever has a gold album, but he put out, I don't know, seven or eight albums. He churned them out every single year. So they had very successful solo careers after that. But this is the end of five albums, five incredible albums in five years. And this is like uh, the end of the run with Trompe Le Monde. And anyway, people love, you know, Monkey's Gone to Heaven is very well known. People know, whereas My Mind obviously has hundreds and hundreds of millions of streams on uh, Spotify but I think that some of the deeper cuts are not listened to. There's dozens and dozens of great Pixie songs, but this is one of my favorites off this album for sure. Yeah, so uh, from Boston, there you guys, uh, and, uh, you know, classic uh, um, alternative from that era, for me anyway. I mean, that's like what I grew up listening to. And, uh, and I just love that song. I love the energy of it. Just like come in like, guns blazing <laughs> immediately, like, you know, and they always played so hard. They always like a great, great live act. Even now, great live act. I saw them when they got back together. And I think they played 60 songs in like two and a half hours. Like they, like all their songs are like three minutes long. So it's astounding, like the amount of music they play. And it's super fast. It's just so high energy. And, the, and I just love it. They just put everything in there. They're like, you know, they're pop. They're noisier than Sonic Youth at times. They're screaming. They're singing pretty choruses. They're throwing keyboards in there. They're they're doing surf guitar. It's it's, it's all over the place. And it all sounds great. doesn't matter.
2: Yeah. And the, and the lyrical subject matter is usually kind of twisted
0: inconsequential right uh, yeah <laughs> twisted and uh, but it like uh, not to me inconsequential because you're absolutely right like you know whether it's debaser or something where you're talking about you know like debasing people like literally like like a sadomasochistic person but like you know it's for me it's like the words are just like instrumentation like it's like just washes over you you know it's like more about the vibe of the thing than was anything else
2: it, exactly and that's like the genius of them uh and a lot a lot of groups in that same kind of mold. Yeah. Um, and Nirvana I think is with with this too, although it's usually a little bit more apparent that, you know, this is a painful thing. Right. In a Nirvana tune. The lyrics aren't the main focal point. It's right. really about building the entire sound. And yeah, the Pixies, like you said, at their heart are really a, a, a pop band. Right. That's definitely one of the groups I remember being in fairly heavy rotation on a station like WBRU,
0: especially up in Boston. I can only imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's right there. So, um, yeah, they're great. So my next hit, and we we touched on this, very atmospheric. Yep. And the main sample is from the New Romantics. Oh yeah, of course. Subgenre Spando Ballet mm-hmm. um, song and actually they were like fully on board with being sampled and i believe the original singers in the pm dawn video so they're like all about it you know which is kind of cool um and it's really um almost hippie nonsense but that and the visual when i was eight years old and the groove is just very relaxing it just takes you to a nice place Plastic plants, You find a lady with a fat diamond ring, and then you know I can't remember a damn thing. I think it's one of those deja vu things. Or a dream to trying to tell me something, but will I ever stop thinking about it? I don't know. But I'm you're probably, probably gonna say I look lovely, but you probably don't think nothing of me. She was right
1: though. I can't lie. It's just one of those corners of my mind, and I just put her right back with the rest. That's the way it goes you send me
0: but that is, uh, I think that they are uh, very influential and f- f- largely forgotten despite despite having a couple of really huge hit songs. But it's, like, so blending these different genres together, which at the time, you know, the gangster rappers called them soft and made fun of them and everything. But, of course, it's completely normal to, like, sample Beach House or whatever in your, uh, you know, your um, rap music now. Yeah. And uh, so they, this was kind of breaking the mold at the time. And and also that whole, like, you know, just the psychedelia of it and stuff like that, which, you know, uh, hadn't been tried before. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that they're underappreciated.
2: Yeah, and not only, um, it wasn't just, like, gangster rap. I think KRS won yeah that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> um i don't know interesting group had um that first album which this comes from and then their follow-up i think was really good and then they may have put out one more but it it rose and fell quickly there's a very small window yeah. commercially for that particular strain of hip-hop that wasn't aggressive basically
0: I'd say that's it across the board, right? I mean, yeah. until these kind of pop rappers now, I mean, you can be pop and it's not detrimental to you, like, you know, Drake and, and these other guys yeah. can, you know, have hugely successful careers, but you're absolutely correct. There were these kind of uh, folks that came in that weren't like grabbing headlines for getting arrested at airports and things. And that was it. Like, you know, like you had this moment where they would have this uh, one or two records of popularity. And then like, you know, whether it's arrested development or a lot of these, um, um, hip hop acts at this time that were trying to kind of blend genres mm-hmm. it you know they really couldn't sustain a career
2: yeah that's why outkast is so so important yeah. in the evolution of hip hop mm-hmm. and i think yep. they absorbed a lot of these influences from yep. other geographic hip hop areas right but may, it was also synthesized stuff from like leaders of the new school yep um you know x clan uh, west coast stuff the far side yeah far like all that and i think um it's no coincidence that evolution from the east coast west coast divide really was like then there's outcast in atlanta and then that grew and grew and now atlanta kind of based hip-hop is the that's the pervading style right in a lot of ways and took stuff from groups that were, you know, Tribe Called Quest, PM Dawn, I think, um, even like Rest of Development.
0: So my next song is going to be kind of touching on different a bunch of different things. This was a, an era where the soundtracks were like big deals, even for films that weren't that popular. Like Vim Vendors had made a film, always partnered with U2 on his soundtracks, by the way, and on one of the screenplays of one of his movies that were not very good, by the way. One of the films that came out in this year or film that came out in 1991 was Wim Wenders, the German director. And it was called Until the End of the World. And there was a soundtrack that went along with it. This soundtrack is not available anywhere. You can't find it. You can't buy it on Amazon. You can't stream it. You you can kind of cobble together the soundtrack from multi-sources. One of them was Until the End of the World, the song on the Octum Baby album which is also the name of the, this, so that's one of the songs that's on there. But Elvis Costello has an excellent song on there. There is a Talking Heads song that's only available on there. You can't find it. Like if you search for it, you can't stream it anywhere. And uh, Nick Cave has a great song on there. And Nick Cave's former bandmates, I forget the name of the band, but they branched off into it's a separate a birthday band. Birthday Party, I think? No, Birthday Party is before. And then okay. the, he was in the Birthday Party. And then they were the Bad Seeds. And then he left the Bad Seeds and went solo. And the Bad Seeds, most of those guys became another band which i can't remember the name of them but they also have a great song on that soundtrack can't find it anywhere although you can find it on youtube you can find like bootlegs on youtube and stuff but can't find it on spotify the track i want to talk about off this album is the naina cherry track called move move with me and naina cherry unfortunately so talented and i'm gonna i'm gonna just excerpt here for a moment her first really giant hit song this her first album was a huge hit and the hit huge hit song buffalo stance
3: Good today. no
0: and unfortunately despite the massive success of that first record and even Grammy Awards and everything else her record her her career really, Fizzled out. She still puts out music, by the way. She just put out an album a couple of years ago, but she never really achieved that kind of huge popular success. And then she had kids and raised them and she was her focus was somewhere else, but now she's Mm -hmm. trying to put music out again. But the song I want to play is move with me from her second album. The album is called homebrew. And uh, this uh, song was on that soundtrack, like I said, came out in December 1991, but doesn't turn up on her album until 1992, which is available to stream on Spotify. And I do recommend you guys stream this song and it's called Move With Me and talk about blending genres here. Tell me how does this sound like the sound of 1991 when you hear this production here?
2: crazy I really only heard um buffalo stance probably playing i think that was on a grand theft audio radio station <laughs> one of the games but that's crazy on that buffalo stance
0: you mean was that on the uh
2: thought of one of them when they maybe four when they went fully 3d or whatever
0: isn't that, was... that song mind blowing though <laughs> it's like utterly mind-blowing to think that that is off that record at that time right amazing
2: and i looked up the record too it's crazy this uh, alone i didn't know this but the first track features guru yeah from gangstar that's crazy and track eight features michael stipe is that
0: a uh, Trout? i think that might be the single uh, off the album yeah, yeah. Trout. Yeah. right yeah. yeah that was so- a single actually that was like you know that was the it cracked the top 40 it was like one of those things you know she was coming off a big hit so it got some rape airplay and it's a good song i like trout but i don't like it as much as this song this song knocks me out because even at the time i remember when i had that soundtrack i'm like holy cow like you know she just took it to another level there but then listening to it now you're like this is like the sound of the future this is like this is a massive attack and tricky before massive attack and tricky right i, I was just <laughs> gonna say right so
2: one song that um i mistakenly uh, you caught me on this and thank you for saving me but this was 91. yeah that justify my love song by madonna
0: oh right yeah Again, which is a great song by the way also a great song but also
2: just like a beat yeah i think this this song is better all oh, the- that,
0: that's definitely better because what I always would say about Madonna, we should just have a whole Madonna episode, is that she's really good at following a trend and f- working with good producers, but she doesn't have the, you know, she's not a great vocalist, she's not a great lyricist, and like, what's so amazing about this song, I think you're going to touch on it, is that, you know, you're hearing not only this very clever production and this kind of minimalism, I mean, this is what Lauren Hill is so exceptional at, you know, 10 years later, right, is the rapping and the amazing vocals also, right?
2: No, that was a that was a great track.
0: I need to listen to it a few more times before I can say anything else about it. <laughs> really, a great song, and maybe like my the uh, this whole ex- exercise, like rediscovering that song was like my greatest pleasure, I would say. And I like, uh, but everybody, go out and listen to Nina Cherry. <laughs> That's what I got to say.
2: Yeah, I'm down. That's on my to do list.
0: that's the end of part one of our conversation there will be a follow-up episode there was more tracks we played for each other and i'll be compiling that over the course of the week and probably get it out to you around the same time next week in the background you're hearing michael jackson's black or white he had been knocked out of the number one spot this week in 1992, 30 years ago, by Nirvana's Nevermind, like, but he was still number one on the pop charts. Meanwhile, just for historical purposes, Smells Like Teen Spirit was actually number six, which is pretty impressive for that song at that time. Keep your eyes peeled if you are on Spotify. There'll be a version of this episode publishing, which has full album tracks in there. And if you are on Spotify, you'll notice, you're the only ones, by the way, that you'll see two versions of this episode. And the longer one, of course, is the one with all the additional music. Between now and that next episode, expect a recap episode discussing the finale of the Yellow Jackets show on Showtime. Very curious to see how this season ends. And if you haven't caught up on that, I definitely recommend it. It's got elements of Lost, if you like, we're a fan of that. It's maybe the modern Lost, as usual. Reach out to us, introduction at gmail.com. Do you have some favorites from 1991 you'd like to shed light on, reach out to me and maybe we'll have a follow-up episode. And if you're new to this podcast because of this music topic, definitely check out our previous music episodes. We cover Harry Nilsson, we cover music of 1971, another extremely important year in music. We talk about Soundgarden and Chris Cornell's career on the anniversary of his death and two episodes spanning the peak years of Prince's career. So definitely look through our feed for other music episodes. So I hope I introduced you to some new music or some old music that's new again. And I'll talk to you soon.